When the gospel first was preached at the village of Nkolenkema, in the very heart of Africa, almost dead center Africa in the land of Zaire. Following the preacher came a man named Lulu Bekanga. Crying out behind the missionary as he went down through the village, the first person in this village to believe in this Jesus, I personally will bury. And the village trembled, for they knew indeed that he would. He was a sadistic murderer. His spear was notched again and again with the evidence of his victims. His bow covered with an anguilla tail. Anguilla is the large black monkey of the jungles of Zaire. Had notch after notch. And they knew that this man was deadly serious. Deadly serious. But by the grace of God, the first person saved in that village was Bokelotan Tuan, his nephew, and he did not dare kill his nephew. And then miracle of miracles, the second person saved was 40-year-old Lulu Bekanga. What a joy it was to disciple him, to teach him how to study God's Word for himself, to preach the gospel. And we began traveling together. We traveled on bicycles, on foot. We made uh, agreements with our bicycles. We agreed that they would carry us where they could, and we would carry them where they couldn't. And we did a lot of carrying them where they couldn't. Never forget the area, the Diao. The Diao, of course, is a tributary of the Kasai River, one of the giant rivers of Zaire running down into the second largest river in the world, the Zaire or the Congo River. During the rainy season, we would enter the flood plain of that river and we'd be up to here in water. We'd wade carrying our bicycles on our heads for about an hour. Of course, we had certain problems. We had hippos. We had crocodile. I've seen them up to 16 feet long. That's a lot of lizards. But during the dry season, we would see the little, six little creeks that crossed the path going down into the main river. And uh, about a 40-mile trek, my feet were getting tired. In fact, they were starting to blister. And I went over the side of the trail, took off my shoes, began to bandage my feet. And old Bekanga came up and looked down at me and said, Mondele, <laughs> Mondele. Mondele jaina masini ya ya malamu mpenja kasi pnunayo pnunayo mabe mingi white man you've got a good engine but you've got awful tires what a time we had preaching the gospel turning those villages upside down what a joy to eat the same food with him sleep in the same huts sit around the same campfires when he was baptized he said, I want to take a new name. I want to be called Paul. And he became indeed the Apostle Paul of his people, Bekonga Paul. And then the Simba Revolution broke out. They swept through and they burned all of our churches, 13 of them. They burned seven schools, massacred our Christians by the hundreds. 
and they got Bikanga. They tied him in a torture hole. They bowed him back like a bow drawn to launch an arrow until they could tie his wrist to his ankles behind his back. And they tied him with wet hemp ropes. The wet ropes stretched as they tied him tight. And as those ropes began to dry, they began to shrink and became tighter and tighter until his feet were like melons, his hands, balloons. They stood over him. They stomped him. They ripped their hair out of his head. They said, Bekonga, if you do not deny this Jesus, we are going to kill you. And he looked up into their faces in agony and he said, you may kill me, but I will never deny my Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, where does a man get that kind of love for his God? Do you realize, beloved, that we could expunge from the pages of this Bible every reference to the Great Commission all through the New Testament, going back even to Revelation chapter 22, where he reiterates once again, He that heareth, say, Come. You go through the Old Testament and remove from this Bible every nuance, every verse, every reference, every phrase, anything that could possibly indicate that the God of heaven ever gave that glorious command, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And when you had completed that task, from the study of God's word, you would have come to know the God of heaven. And you would have fallen in love with him. And you would have imbibed from him a passion for the lost that cannot be quenched. Your mind would be obsessed with the task of reaching them with an obsession that you could not deny. Your eyes would have been open, the thimble of your vision filled from the ocean of his, with a vision for that task that will not dim. And you would have abandoned your very being to the same glorious task to which the God of heaven has abandoned his being, a destination he will not abandon. For you see, beloved, missions is based upon the nature and character of God. Missions, indeed, is a love affair with God. I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 21. Begin reading with verse 15. Let's talk for a little while this morning about love. Verse 15, so when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verse 17. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Now listen closely to verses 18 and 19. For they are the key to understanding that about which the Lord Jesus is speaking to Peter. Verily, 
Verily I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldst. When thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify Christ. When he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. Now, when I was a teenager here in the United States, I was involved in the starting of three churches. And, of course, most of the folks saved in those churches were white. Then God gave us 13 congregations in the land of Zaire, all blacks from the jungles. Moving to the land of Suriname, South America, we have a number of churches, some of them mixed with various colors of people. Have one church with red Indians out of the jungles, Amerindian peoples. We have yellows from Asia. We have browns from India. We have blacks from Africa and a few whites from the United States and Europe. All of those beautiful colors of the little chorus we sing, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black and white. They're precious in His sight. And so we've seen many different colors of Christians, but I think only two kinds. We found Psalm 23 Christians. Their entire life is wrapped up, can be circumscribed in the circumference of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The worship of El Shaddai, the breasted one. The one beloved who gives us strength in times of weakness, who succors us in times of sorrow, who supplies our needs in times of need. The breasted one who cradles and coddles us and cuddles us. And I speak to the people in Africa and South America of the great lake of the love and mercy and goodness of the God of heaven, but damned by our sin. And then the Lord Jesus cries, it is finished. And God reaches down a mighty fist and breaches that dam. And His love and mercy begin to pour through and the breach begins to crumble and at last the dam collapses. And we're caught up in what Vance Havner once called the water spouts of God. Glorious, glorious experience. And I'm not here to knock it. In fact, there are 33 miraculous changes that take place between the God of heaven and a newly born again human being. Miraculous. Glorious. But I'm here to remind you this morning that it's not all. We go on into Psalm 24 and you find these words in about verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up your everlasting door. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up your everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross for our sins. He was raised again for our justification. And now He's on His way back to the 
kingdom of glory, and he passes through the realm of the principalities of the powers of the air, and he casts them from himself in mighty triumph. And now he's approaching the ramparts of glory, and there the angels rise. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up ye everlasting doors, and the Lord of hosts shall come in. That, beloved, is God's fighting name. You find it all through Scripture, I think, for the first time in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 3. You trace it through, and you find it's the name God takes when He puts on His boots. It's the name God takes when He straps on His buckler. It's the name God takes when He swings up His sword to go to war against sin, against Satan, across this world and across this universe. Jehovah Sabbath, God's fighting name. And how few, how pitifully few ever join Jehovah Sabbath and march behind him as their general. And that's what he was talking to Peter about. Verse 18, he says, Verily, Peter, I say unto you, I'm looking down through the corridor of the time of your life. And I can see, Peter, that when you're young, you're going to do pretty much as you please, but when you're old, they're going to take hold of you and they're going to carry you where you would not go. And they're going to do with you what you would not have done. In fact, Peter, they're going to kill you for my name's sake. Now, Peter, do you love me that way? Look at it again in verse 15. So when they had died, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? You, of course, in your studies will certainly learn, if you have not already, that when the Lord Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And when Peter responded, yes, Lord, I love you, both accurately translated love, but two different kinds of love. The love the Lord Jesus was asking Peter for was agape love, as we would call it. I learned a definition years ago of that love goes something like this. Love is a desire for and a delight in the well-being of the one loved, leading to active and self-sacrificing efforts on their behalf. Listen to that again. Love is a desire for and a delight in the well-being of the one loved, leading to active and self-sacrificing efforts on their behalf. I was preaching in a great church down in Ohio one time to several hundred students, one by that church off the campuses of Ohio State and Ohio U. I was a missionary speaker for that meeting. Dr. French was the Bible teacher. Dr. French went back into 1 John, and he took this word agape, and he called it love with shoes on. Peter, I'm making up an army. Peter, there's a battle out there. The first salvo was... Fired by Satan, Lucifer, back in ageless eternity. He was cast out of heaven as recorded in Isaiah chapter 14. And Peter, now we're going to war over the souls of men and women, boys and girls across this world. There's war ahead, Peter. There's hatred and scorn, beatings and prison and death ahead, Peter. And it happened. No sooner had Peter taken up the gauntlet of the Lord's service than in Acts 4 he's arrested and jailed. 
In Acts 5, he's back in prison again and now beaten. And in Acts 12, he's imprisoned and the Jews have been promised his head in the morning. God's Peter, people are at the home of John Mark crying, Oh God, you let them kill James. Please, Lord, don't let them kill Peter. And God hears in the middle of the night and sends an angel to lead Peter out through locked doors. Peter, there's war ahead. And Peter, I'm looking for men. Looking for men who will sacrifice. I'm looking, Peter, for men who will suffer. I'm looking, Peter, for men who will serve. I'm looking, Peter, for men who will separate themselves from the dream of this world. I'm looking, Peter, for men who will subject themselves to the will of the commander-in-chief. I'm looking, Peter, for men who will soldier. Now, Peter, do you love me with shoes on? And, of course, Peter's reply was, Yes, Lord, I love you with a warm-hearted affection. Nothing wrong with that kind of love, beloved. In fact, in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, both agape and phileo, love, are mentioned. And we're commanded, would you believe it, as Baptist believers, we're not only commanded to treat each other right, but we're commanded to love each other with a warm-hearted affection. Nothing wrong with that kind of love. We talk a long time, we don't have the time to do that. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen a two-headed driver? I mean, it looks like a two-headed driver. It's two heads real close together on one shoulder. Now, I'm kind of a romantic felon, so when I see that, I like to pull up alongside and take a peek. <laughs> and we were out in Salt Lake City, Utah, my hometown one time, and I saw this two-headed driver in a pickup truck. I mean, she was over against him. Her, her head was laying right on his, on his neck right here. I said, I had to see that. Pulled up alongside, my heart was blessed. Beloved, those people were 75 years old. If they were a day, their heads were snow white. And there she was so scrunched over against him like that. I, I tried to get my wife over like that. She said, I have to keep my seatbelt on. <laughs> yeah. And here she was. Here she was all scrunched over against him. I said, my goodness, if they've got that much, much warmth left now, what kind of a bonfire did they have when they got married? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that kind of love, beloved. All you have to do with me to get my heart warm is to start singing those great old hymns of the faith. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, fall, or, lead, or try. Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, thy tent shall be our home. And I'm on my way to glory. Ever been in a Baptocostal church down south? I'm in great, great doctrine, but they sure get excited. I was in one Lexington, North Carolina. I asked the preacher how long I had to take. He said, well, on Sunday evening... Basically, I have 50 minutes. I say, that's fine. That's a good time for a northern preacher. But the choir started to sing. And you know, these southern choirs, they don't sing one song. and They should just start going through the book. <laughs> and at 10 after 8, they're getting happy. At a quarter after 8, a big bass wrapped his arms around another man on that side and told him I loved him in the Lord. At half past 8, beloved, we're on our way to glory. And they finally quit. 
The pastor said, Brother Champlin, don't let the Spirit be hindered. You just preach until you're preached out. About 9.30, I'm preaching along. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. I don't know what that means. Amen, brother. Preach at 10.30. Amen. That's what's going to happen today. No, 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 no. <laughs> but you know as well as I do how quickly that love cools when you go out the front door of the church or the back door of the chapel. And the question will come again and again and again. My son, my daughter, do you love me? How do you love me? Let me illustrate for the next few minutes some of our experiences on the mission field where the Lord Jesus has asked us that very question. Do you love me? How? We had a prayer card, something like this, in... Uh, 1979, across the top of the card were written these words. Three generations of missionaries from 1917 to 1979. I'd see young people in the, pit, in the churches pick up that card and look at me, and look at that card and look at me, and I could just hear the wheels turning. Is that gray-headed old geezer up there in the pulpit, does he go all the way back to 1917? No, 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 I plead innocent. That was my father-in-law, Daddy Grings. They went out in 1917. Since that time, every member of his family has gone to the mission field. All of the children, all of the grandchildren, and now Brian Bell and Darla Bell are the first two of the great-grandchildren of my wife's father to return to the mission field. Thus far, for 80 years, from 1917 to 1997, every member of their family has gone to the mission field without exception. Incredible. They sailed in 1917 originally in a party of missionaries. They married three years later, began to raise a family, came back to the States in the late 20s, and helped Bob Jones Sr. at the establishment of the first campus at Lynn Haven, Florida. It was there my wife was born, 1933. The Lord said, you better get back to Zaire. And they booked sailing on an old wooden sailing ship. Had no auxiliary power, no engine, no radio, no refrigeration. Four-masted schooner. They took live animals, cows and what have you, and, and live fowl, chickens, on board to eat as they sailed across. For two months, they tacked their way back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean. Many times becalmed. And when they were become, they would let the anchor chain down. Not they could touch the bottom to kind of try to conserve the, the uh, progress that they had made until at last they were 200 miles off of the coast of Africa and they were sinking. That old wooden hull carrying a cargo of salt had begun to separate. The water was pouring in. The pumps were frozen. And the captain came to them and said, you better pray. This ship's going to sink. After three days, it was so filled with water, listing so heavily that the great mass almost touched the billows as they rolled from side to side. The captain came and said, we've got to abandon ship. We're going to turn turtle. No, no radio. They took everything flammable on that ship and piled it on the deck, poured kerosene over it, tied long ropes to the two little inadequate lifeboats, one just a rowboat for ship to shore in a, in a harbor. They could take nothing but the clothes on their backs. They got into that little rowboat. They began to bail. 
The billows were huge. They had set fire to that ship, and that column of smoke going up into the sky was their only hope of rescue. It was getting dark, and they were bailing, and they were going to die. And then they saw on the horizon the mast of a ship, and they prayed God that it was headed their way. It grew dark. They bailed for their lives, and at last they heard the rumbling of the Dutch ship Hercules engines. And that ship hove to and began to play its spotlight over the billows and located those two little lifeboats still tied to that blazing hulk and took them aboard. And they stood there and watched everything they had in the world go to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Tragedy? No. Just the God of heaven asking a missionary family, do you love me? How do you love me? They asked the captain, how did you find us? He said, three days ago, such a powerful wind began to blow on the bow of my ship that I was unable to maintain my course, and I changed it. And that wind kept thrusting, and I changed it again. And that wind kept pushing me, and I changed it again. And it brought me right to you. But they're headed the wrong direction. Took them all the way back to Puerto Rico. And now they're back where they'd started, and they had nothing but the clothes on their backs. Mama Gring said, Daddy... Maybe God doesn't want us in Africa any longer. And Daddy Green said, yes, Mom, he wants us there. But he didn't want us there with all that baggage. He wanted us light so we can get back into the interior and reach people who have never been reached before. And they sailed again, beloved, with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Tragedy? Nah. Just a missionary family looking into the face of their God and saying, yes, Lord Jesus, we love you with shoes on. And they made it the next time. Went back into the deep jungles. Built a bark house. Started preaching the gospel over that area, many villages for three solid years, and not one person came to Christ. And then the Lord Jesus came to them once again and said, Do you love me? Mrs. Green's got malaria. It turned into blackwater fever, so-called because you bleed to death through your kidneys and your urine is black with blood. They were 30 days' march from the nearest doctor, and she died. Those people came there terrified. This was the first white woman, the first white children they had ever seen. And now that woman is being buried. They were petrified. They couldn't bring themselves to help. They watched as that woman's sons dug their mother's grave, as that woman's husband buried his own wife. They washed us one by one around that grave. Each of those children testified to the love of God. And finally, at my wife then ate, she said, I'm not afraid of death. My mommy's in heaven. She knows Jesus as her Savior, and one day I'll be there with him because I know him too. I'm not afraid of death. And the next morning, five young men came and said, Missionary, we want to be Christian. Oh, why did you wait so long? Missionary... The message you preached sounded like it was good for living, but we weren't sure it was good for dying. Now we know it's good for dying. Then the letters began to come. Daddy Grings, you can't live in Africa caring for five children in the jungle. You better come home. He asked the children, kids, they say we better come home. What do you want to do? And they said, Daddy, we came to Africa as missionaries, and we intend to stay as missionaries. And they stayed 10 more years. They never again had a house. For 10 years, beloved, they went from village to village to village.
two village, two village. The girls had, my wife and her, her sister Elizabeth had two dresses each. And when they questioned their daddy, he said, all a girl needs is two dresses. She can only wear one at a time. Tragedy? No. Just the God of heaven asking a missionary family, do you love me? They came back then. Louise and I met in Californian school. Sailed for Zaire. Oh, what a ten, glorious ten years we had. Thirteen churches. Seven schools. Total 36 men that were training for the gospel. And then the war came in. Sema Revolution. They burned all the churches. Burned all the schools. Massacred the Christians by the hundreds. Killed 20 of the 36 preachers. We were separated from our children. We're standing... I was standing on the wing, wings of the planes that were coming in to help refueling those planes. My wife was helping with the refugees as they came in trying to help feed them. We were isolated in a little town called Kikwit. We'd moved from our station just for a trip and caught there. I'll never forget the nuns. They'd come off of those helicopters. They'd watch their priests hacked in pieces. They'd watch their buildings burn until the aluminum roofs melted and hung down like giant aluminum icicles over the stone wall. They'd been raped and brutalized again and again and again. Some of them raped to death. And they'd come and throw their arms around our necks and sob out their story of terror. And then across the field came one of our brethren. Oh, Brother Champlin, it's terrible, it's terrible. They've shot Irene Farrell through the neck with an arrow, and she's dead. My wife's sister and our sister. The next time he came across, and I'm skipping detail, he said, Brother Champlin, I hardly know how to tell you this, but we've just gotten a report that your wife's brothers and all of your loved ones and all of your three children are dead. And our hearts broke. And our Lord came to us and he said, Do you love with you, give me your children. And somehow he gave us grace through our tears to look up and say, yes, Lord, we love you. We still love you. For a week they were dead to us. And then helicopters came and refused to help. But at last they said, draw us a map. I drew a map. They followed that map one morning. We watched as three helicopters went over the horizon. A couple of hours later they appeared. They began to lower. Our hearts were in our throats. At last they were down. The doors started to swing open. And our loved ones started climbing out. All right, Abraham, you gave me your Isaac. Now you can have him back. All right, Hannah, you gave me your Samuel. Now you can have him back. Beloved, again and again and again, our God is going to ask us, do you love me? How? Must quit, let me just tell you. We ended up in Suriname, South America, a, a place that had been abandoned as a waste of time and money. Three missionary couples had left. The first lasted a year, the second lasted a year, the third five months. We went in, and they, oh, it was fierce. Fierce demonic attacks. Fierce witchcraft. And then at last, souls began to be saved. Then a witch doctor was saved. 
and the whole infrastructure of demonism that had ruled them for 400 years began to crumble. And they played their trump card. They brought in a fire-dancing witch doctor. The chieftain of our nearest village commanded me to come. Louise stayed home to pray. I followed the little trail they had just allowed us to cut between us and that and the village. Find a great crowd of people many up in the trees. I could see the witch doctor back there communing with his demon spirit, washing with his herb waters. He had nothing on but a loincloth, bare feet, bare head, bare chest. Here was a heap of broken beer bottles. Here was a blazing fire, brands the size of my arm, about knee high. He, began, he came out to the beat of their drums. He began to dance around and around the broken beer bottle glass. He leaped on it. He danced on it. He threw his body down and rolled and scrubbed on it. He wasn't cut. He went from there into the blazing fire. He picked up those brands. He stood in it. Picked up the blazing brands and rubbed them through his hair and over his body. He wasn't burned. People began to shout, Bakruden and Tapu. The demon is on him. The demon is on him. They knew the source of the power. Into the glass he went. Into the fire again. And then he turned and he said, Now, if you'll follow me, I'll give you this power. And I knew why he had come. He had come to prove that the power of Satan is greater than the power of God. He was going to break the gospel with a single club. And I cried out, Oh Lord Jesus, what can I do? And he said, You do the dance that he has done and show them that I have power. Yes, Lord. Do you love me? How? They took candidates off to the side to put this demonic power on them. While they were doing that, they heaped the glass again, built the fire blazing. I was able to slip through the crowd. And before they knew what I was about to do, I had long pants on, pulled off my shoes and socks, and I jumped on the glass. And I have to admit, beloved, I jumped gingerly. As I found God was protecting me, I stomped it and it could not cut me. You don't have to be charismatic to believe that. You just have to believe that you serve Jehovah's Sabbath, general of the hosts of the universe. God's not dead. People began to shout, Bakru did not dominate top of the demons on the missionary. Now, huh? They didn't understand yet. I went from the glass, <laughs> went from the glass into the fire. Blazing fire, knee high. And I jumped into that fire. And being a good Baptist boy, I'd never learned to dance, but I said, did some kind of dance in that fire. And as I stomped it and jumped up and down on it, finally it was out. I looked down, I'm standing in a, a bed of blazing hot coals, some of them jammed between my toes, glowing there like little Christmas tree lights. And I turned to the people and I said, listen, God is not in the business of fire dancers. God could have said to you, you have the word of God, you have the messenger of God, you have the gospel of God, and if you did not believe and receive him, he could have sent you to hell and he would have been just. But God had mercy on you to show you his power. Now, this man will give you that power, that demonic power, but if you'll follow my Lord Jesus, and he'll take you to hell. If you'll follow my Lord Jesus, he'll take you to heaven. Make your choice. And they made it. They got up and left the fire. The drummers got up and left. Crowd woke up. Next morning, I prayed, Lord. I couldn't see anything wrong with my feet, but they were hot. I prayed, Lord, if I wake in the morning burned and blistered, you've suffered an awful defeat. When I woke in the morning, 6 o'clock, my feet were perfect. Praise the Lord. I jump out of bed. Now they don't knock like this. They call out, Coco, Coco. I went to the doors, people from the village. Missionary, how are your feet? I said, just take a look. They said, oh, God has power. A couple of the young men who were just starting to train came and said, missionary, if that's the kind of God we worship, you show us the way and we'll walk in it. 
And now they're preaching the gospel in an area about half the size of the state of Michigan. They're walking. We must close. We have the tragic verse of 17. Thus saith, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And uses Peter's word. Peter, do you really love me with a warm-hearted affection? I have to quit. Suffice it to say, beloved, that Peter learned. He writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 1, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Peter, crucified for Christ, learned to love his Lord with shoes on. May God teach us to love him with shoes on.